How are you feeling? <laughs> I'm feeling good. I'm feeling well. You know, it's Friday. Uh, the weather—it's like all of a sudden it's spring, maybe almost summer. Yep, it's I'm feeling pretty there. good about that. It's We're vaccinated. Be... Yes, yes. <laughs> you just got vaccinated? Uh, no, no. We've been good for a couple of weeks now, um, oh, okay. but. Uh, like, you know, very first time, like two weeks ago was the very first time we'd been out to see live music in a year, more than a year. And that was a big deal. You know, it was great being able to 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 be out and uh, hear people playing again. Boy, I really miss that. Yeah. Yeah, it's starting to get up. Um, and I hope everything goes well. Um, I We were in New York uh, last month when they were just starting to do, like, uh, half capacity and hmm. I will tell you right now it's just it was it was a little difficult um because no one was able to get up and they they want you to stay at your seat the whole time you was there it was very strange right. so you know I think I, I get it and I understand why especially in New York how bad it was mm-hmm. um I my the sad part is though like honestly like if we didn't have like I would say the freedom rhetoric um, we probably would have did a lot better because it, it was just basically off of everyone's personal decisions. And yeah, I mean, we could have been we could have been done with this. We could have been done with this six months ago, nine months ago. Um, if uh, you know, if they had, if they, if everybody had taken it seriously from the beginning, if the government had taken it seriously from the beginning, if right. they'd given us the things we needed in order to get through, uh, could have been done a long time ago. Yeah, man. And you see countries like New Zealand and Vietnam just got it all in control and everything. It's it's set an example. I just hope that I don't think it's it's gonna like set it's gonna get everybody to realize, but I hope that majority of Americans see this and understand the importance of just like you don't have to push the freedom ring bell all the time like you have to just be responsible and it's important for your life and your family's life and all that stuff like that well you know one of the things that made me think about is that uh, uh, in the United States we really haven't thought about public health in a serious way for a long time uh, public health you know making community-wide decisions about what's going to be best for the health of the community 
um, you know, and not making like selfish individual decisions. Because um, you can see what happens. I mean, you know, during this last year, there were a lot of good people who got pulled in a lot of different bad directions because they just had no, they had no framework from which to understand like, yeah, we have, I have a responsibility to other people because um, they, weren't, they weren't raised to see that. Society doesn't encourage that. Yeah, yeah. And, and also, it would have been a good move for, you know, to add universal health care, which would have made such a, so much of a better significant uh, difference. Um, and oh. the ball was dropped on that. Yeah, my, my, um, uh, my, my insurance carrier, after it's all over, like literally a week ago, they sent out a notice saying, oh, we just wanted to tell all our members that if you have to get treated for COVID, if you have to go to the hospital or see a doctor, or if you have to get any other kinds of treatment, we're, we're going to waive all of the um, you know, deductibles, the, the co-pays, all this other stuff. Like, yeah, what they did is they, they waited until it was almost all over and they figured out how much it was going to cost them. And then they said, okay, you know what? Yeah, we're going to waive this stuff. Like last year... <laughs> Last year, when people were going with, were deciding whether or not to go to the hospital and thinking, you know, my health insurance has like a $1,500 deductible and I don't have $1,500, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, or it's, a, you know, $50 copay every time we get a prescription and I can't afford that. You know, it would have been really helpful if people knew that their treatment for COVID was going to be free then. Yeah. Telling us yeah. after the fact, like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're not going to we're not going to come after you and charge you thousands of dollars for, you know, for the treatment that you got. Well, you know, it would have been nice to know that beforehand. Yeah, after a certain amount of people already had died. And yeah. The damage is done. But, you know, late stage capitalism, whatever. Uh, this is Peter <laughs> Gosselin, everybody. I wanted to make sure I introduce you. Uh, he is a member of the Green Party, uh, a socialist activist, lawyer, labor lawyer. And um, you put two different kinds. You said employment in, in labor lawyer. Yeah, labor and labor and employment. People in our field talk about labor and employment as being like kind of two different things in a way. Labor is usually representing labor unions against employers, and employment usually refers to individual claims like like discrimination, sexual harassment, uh, you know, stuff like that. Um, it's uh, it's actually um, you know when you're thinking about the problem of capitalism. And thinking about the workplace, they've passed all these, they've passed a lot of laws that give people, supposedly give people individual rights in the workplace. Uh, you know, Title VII, um, Americans with Disabilities Act, things like that. And they're, they're positive, they're positive things. And, you know, they help people. And I, I rely on those laws to help people. But there isn't a single individual client that comes into my office on any day of the week who wouldn't be better off working in a union shop with a union contract, you know, they would have 10 times the right that they have as an right. individual employee. So, uh, yeah, labor and employment, it's almost like they're two different, two different things. Um, there's the 10% of the workforce that's covered by contracts, union contracts. And then there's a the 90% that are, you know, mostly at will employees and like have no job security, yeah, as you saw with the pandemic, right? You know, the employer's yeah. profits go down, uh, or even if the employer's profits don't go down, they can they right. can they can fire people. Yeah, me 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 and uh, Chris 
uh, the co-hosts uh, for this show as well, too. Uh, we're talking about it like on, on the wrestling perspective that a lot of great athletes were just being let go for no reason whatsoever when it's a billion dollar business um for instance like wwe and they just it's it, it wasn't nothing that it was like oh well we're going to lose our businesses or no because they were able to survive and they came up with different tactics with live stream audience it was just the fact that they just didn't want to give people that much money and they and they gave them all these contracts and and now they are unemployed and it sucks because it's not a union like so it's definitely right. they're going to have some issues and so we were just talking about that for for a big example but that's that's just like the huge example of what's going on in america right now like you were saying with just unemployment and and how now i don't know if you've noticed <laughs> that there's uh photos going on the internet of employers upset about the unemployment oh yeah 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 by workers <laughs> like there's certain businesses that's been posting their anger <laughs> you <funny>. know <laughs> it's like and the thing that gets me is when i see a small business person like okay like you let's say you run a restaurant right and you're gonna you're complaining about the fact that you can't get people to come in and work for the crappy wages that you pay and you know you're a, <laughs> exactly. you're a small business so i understand that's really for you know the small business is really getting stepped on and they're really frustrated and i understand that but you even just think about this for a minute you think okay, I'm running a restaurant like in a neighborhood. Who comes into that restaurant? People who work for a living, people who depend on unemployment insurance, people who like sometimes are out of a job. And it's, it's not even just your servers that you're insulting. You're literally insulting everybody who walks into your business uh, by saying, oh, the problem is people are too lazy. They don't want to work. Um, you know, we saw this the other day, right? Somebody, uh, this little business in, in Connecticut down in uh down in Ivoryton, this little cafe, they're complaining about how hard it is for them as small business people. And they're saying, oh, you know, the thing is Governor Lamont should cut the un their unemployment. Okay, and that's gonna help you how? Like, how is that gonna, how is that gonna help you? you? You know, your customers depend, some of your customers depend on unemployment so that they can come in and like buy your food. Um, and, uh, uh, and if you're paying so little that Somebody getting thrown off of unemployment is what it's going to take to have them come to work for you. That's pretty sad. Yeah, That's really pretty yeah. sad. Yeah, I agree. And also the fact that for, for restaurants, I don't know about all other occupations, but I do know for like bartenders and waiters, they are also on unemployment. So they're getting a little extra and still having their, um, their part-time restaurant job or per diem, restaurant job, whatever mm -hmm. they're needed for it. But that just goes to show how important that they can't, they don't have living wages. And right. So that's why they need to have unemployment while also doing the restaurant job on the side. So I just think, I just think it's freaking funny how they just want to just blame <laughs> the wrong thing instead of address the actual issue, which should be addressed. Like, we just need to unionize. There's restaurant yep. unions. Um, yeah, I don't know how to get yeah. to them. Do you know how that works out? Like, look, if, if a, well, I don't know if any business owners are watching this, but uh, <laughs> if they were, like, how can they assure, in a way, to uh, give more better living wages to their employees so they don't have to uh, go to unemployment? 
Well, in the food industry, one of the big things, you know this, that that uh, for uh, servers and bartenders is that they have this thing called the tip credit. And the tip credit system in Connecticut is even worse in other places uh, because in uh, uh, in states where they're o- the only minimum wage is the federal minimum wage, the tip credit allows a restaurant employer to pay an, pay an employee like $2.31 an hour and then the rest of the minimum wage comes from their tips. Oh. So that's like, that's crazy, right? But even here in Connecticut, um, I think the tipped minimum wage for servers, I think it's six thirty-eight an hour. So $12 an hour is the minimum wage. But, the, but a restaurant owner only has to pay $6.38 to their employee per hour for work, as long as that employee is also getting tips that amount to the rest of the of the rest of the minimum wage and it's an awful system for one thing people giving tips don't realize that those tips are going to make minimum wage for people like mm-hmm. they're thinking okay i'm giving them something above and beyond what they what they're supposed to be getting anyway right uh and so they assume people are getting 12 dollars an hour or more and so they're going to give them a tip because they gave good service or just because they're you know they looking out for their fellow workers uh and uh uh, and they assume that they're actually helping these people out. All they're really doing is allowing the employer to pay less. Uh, and that system needs to change. That's one of the things we learned from the pandemic. That that system does not does not work. That has to be that has to be eliminated. We have to have universal minimum wages for minimum wage for everyone. And and it has to obviously be a hell of a lot higher than it is now. Right. And what would you say to people that I mean? I'm pretty, we're both socialists, so we already have the answers, but what would you say to people that don't get is like, why would we need a, like a UBI? What, what makes, uh, that's a UBI, what the hell? Uh, what makes a universal basic, in, yeah, UBI, what makes yeah. a universal basic income um, a great idea for the working class in the United States, for instance, like for someone that just doesn't understand that? Well, I mean, one of the most important things is that, uh, you know, folks who are in the workforce right now, and especially uh, this is one of the things that's kind of a pet peeve for me, because in the period of time when I was coming up, it wasn't that unusual for somebody to go to work for a big employer, especially a big manufacturer, and get a job and, and work their entire life in that job. You know, they might they might easily work. 10 years in the same job and never even think about leaving. They might like work there the entire time through their entire work life and retire from that place. Mm-hmm. And, and back in the 19, 1990s, that really dr- began to change dramatically. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I was accustomed as a lawyer, I would have people coming into my office saying, well, you know, I just got laid off from my job and I've been there for like 15 years and they gave us a severance package. And then after a couple of years, it was like, well, we just got laid off from our job. You know, I worked there for eight years and I got this severance package. Then a couple of years after that, it's like, you know what? I've only been there for two years, but nobody's been there more than two years because nobody has any job security. Uh, you know, the, the, the old days when people worked in a job for a long period of time and had job security and felt safe and felt like, okay, I know, I, you know, I know how to put aside money for my retirement. I know how to make plans in case I get sick. Um, I can do all those things because I know what the future is going to hold. And now job security has completely disappeared. 
Um, healthcare, the cost of healthcare is through the roof. Um, most of the plans that, uh, most of the old fashioned pension plans that paid people a pension are now 401ks. So even if you're lucky enough to have a job with a pension plan, as a 401k, all it does is just pay you back the money that you paid into it. Right. Uh, and it's never going to be enough. It's never going to be enough for you to retire on. Um, meanwhile, all these other government benefits like Social Security. Social Security hasn't gone up in years. So <laughs> Yeah, it has it. It's like we're just what all... Inflation is. <laughs> yeah, and we right, exactly. Prices go up okay. Um, but, you know, all of these things are about, like, the lack of security that the workplace has these days. So if we had either, you know, any of these things, right? If we had universal health care, universal single payer health care, like Medicare for all, or if we had a universal basic income, uh, or, you know, guaranteed benefits when you lose your job, regardless of why you lose your job, um, you know, all of these things would give people a stronger sense of security. And of course, also, if there was like, you know, so if social security was something you could actually retire on, or if you became disabled, you'd actually be able to live on Social Security disability. I mean, right now, the amount that people get for that is a joke. Uh, there's, it's nowhere near what they need to live on. So, so you know, people have the, like just this tremendous sense of like on it, on any given day, something could happen. And, you know, I could be out on the street. I could be evicted. I could be out on the street. Um, I could be living in my car. I wouldn't be able to pay my mortgage. I might have to file for bankruptcy. Um, you know, people are carrying that around with them all the time. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, during the pandemic, people finally started to talk about the idea of like public mental health care and why that's important. Like yeah. the number one thing you could do to improve the mental health of working people in the United States would be to give us something like either universal basic income or universal health care. Because it would be like, you know what, now I don't have to worry about this anymore. Now I'd have to don't always have to worry that I'm going to suddenly lose all this, uh, everything I have um, yeah. or that I'm never going to be able to get ahead. Um, you know, those would those would do more to help people's mental health than just about anything else I can think of. Right. I'm not I'm not a I'm not a mental health expert. So but while, while you're saying that, I was thinking, I'm like, what the hell would they tell them if. Someone comes up and be like, look, I just got fired from this job and my, my second job. They both let me go. I got five kids. What I don't know what to do. What can I do? Well, maybe you should breathe. Right, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Right. Like, because I'm not right now. To anybody, but I'm just thinking, like, what in the hell are they going to tell these workers when shit like that happens? Like, <laughs> yeah. Because it's just like in the same way that in the same way that healthcare is individual, is individualized. There's no public health care. You know, um, uh, whether or not you make it, whether or not you can pay your rent is a matter of whether or not you individually are bringing enough money. There's no there's no you know guaranteed basic income or or any other benefits that help people in that situation. And mental health is exactly the same way. Mental health in the United States right now. It's a it's operates within its capitalist framework, this like selfish framework that says, OK, mental health is about what's going on in your head. That's all it has to do with. It doesn't have to do with your material circumstances. It doesn't have to do with, you know, things that are affecting your neighbors or your neighborhood or where you work. So, you know, somebody goes to work and they work in a horrible environment with like somebody who screams at them all the time. Like you said, they go to the therapist for help and the therapist says, learn how to breathe. 
Like, well, how about like <laughs> teaching my boss not to scream at me all the time? Like that would be right. really, that would help my mental health right. a whole hell of a lot. And that's one of the biggest reasons why people leave their jobs. Um, I have had multiple yep, jobs before I got hired at the Yale hospital or working at life. My days, shout out to life. My days, boop, 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 boop. but before um, I met those two great, I got those two great jobs. I have worked on and off in so many restaurants, I did so much catering, um, ridiculous. And the reason why I left, uh, thank God I'd never been fired, but the reason why I left and took that chance to try to find something else was because the management was trash. And oh, yeah. yeah. Rude as hell. Like, I could tell you stories upon stories. <laughs> And it's just, you know, just off of that experience. It's like, I can't imagine what, how people feel. Like, people don't want to deal with this abuse. And, that's and, right. And, and if they don't, and, and, and even if they have no choice but to, like, that's the most toxic situation to be in an environment like that 24 like, 7. Seen, I've seen people work in lousy jobs for years because their coworkers were really good coworkers because they really got along and they really felt they could count on them. Um, you know, uh, that's something that could make it possible to deal with really bad circumstances. But a, but a, a bad boss, you know, somebody who's abusive to people, uh, you know, talks down to them, um, you know, disregards the things that they need in order to be able to do their job uh, and to feel like they have some dignity at work. Um, that's, you know, that that is, that's one of the main things that gets people. Uh, and I think it's one of the, again, it's one of those things that, Back in the day when somebody could say, yeah, I got a crappy boss, but you know what? Um, I have I have good pay. Um, I have job security. I've got benefits. I get to go on vacation for like two or three or four weeks every year. Um, you know, um, I, I know that I've got a pension that's going to be enough for me to live on when I get retired, when I retire. I know that if I get married and have kids, I'll be able to send them to college. If they had all those other things. Yeah, maybe you could put up with somebody who like working for somebody who was a prick, right? But you're absolutely right because. But I if you got none of those things, <laughs> if you got none of those things, why in the world are you going to work for somebody who treats you like crap? Uh, yeah. You know, why would anybody want to do that? Uh, why would anybody anybody want to stay in a job? Right, right, and and you know, I like how you gave that example because it's so true. Like I see that at the Yale Hospital. Like, and I'm not going to give out any names or anything, but like, you know, employees talk about who's who's a jerk, who's not a jerk. Don't go up to that person. And like, they have b- better lives because of the union that we're in. They have good pay. Mm-hmm. They have good holidays. They have good vacation. So there's a balance with that. It's like, I could deal with this boss because this job benefits my life right. in a positive way versus working at like a mcdonald's and you're you're working and grinding to do everything you can just so you can feed yourself and whoever you need to care about and then you got this boss just all up in it <laughs> and it's like it's not worth it because it's just like bro like just fire me if you're going to be acting like this right and the, and the funny part of it is that that the management looks at this and they completely misunderstand it they think Oh, you know, the problem is people don't want to work because they'll leave a perfectly good job. It's like, well, they're leaving a perfectly good job because they're being treated badly and because there's nothing else that's going to keep them there, you know, because you haven't offered them anything. 
that's going to make them want to stay and put up with your bullshit. Um, people put up with a lot, you know, if the, if the conditions are, if there are conditions that make up for it, but you know, you treat them badly and you give them nothing. Why, why, why would anybody want to, why would anybody want to work there? No, no one wants to deal with that. But you know, like you said, they'll flip and be like, Oh, they just don't want to work. Like, no man, like maybe you should like relax on how you talk to people. Mm-hmm. Not that's not it's not your kid, <laughs> not your kid. It's your worker, and like, and this shit. And well, another thing that makes uh, capitalist jobs toxic to me in that way, um, just thinking about how they try to give you the you're a team member, you're family oriented. We are a family. This is a oh crew. yeah yeah. <laughs> like they just try to make it seem like you're special. Then next week they fucking lay your ass off. But it's, yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> it's just and they all have like, and they all have a lingo. Either it's like right. you're a family member or you're an associate or you're a team member, and they all have these these various ways of referring to you. The one thing they don't say is that you know, like you're the worker and I'm the boss. And that's the most that's the most important part of that relationship. That doesn't change. They can call people whatever they want, but at the end of right. the day, you know, you work for them, you you're selling them your labor, the boss controls it. That's the, you know that's the end of the story, right, right, and it, it, I think about it as well with when um. Hold on, I'm getting a little frequency here. That's weird. Okay. Anyway, I think about um. You know, I just lost my train of thought, but let's go back to what you were talking about, uh, with the uh, with the labor unions, um. Of, so basically, have you are you still doing any work? with helping out establishing any labors unions or are you or are you uh like built up with a lot of like crazy cases on like employment and everything like that yeah it's kind of bold but uh no i have uh i mean in my practice right now i actually only have one union that i represent on an ongoing basis and that's uh mm-hmm. it's uh, united electrical workers local 222. Now, united electrical workers is a really cool union and one of the reasons it's not one of the biggest unions in the country but the reason it's a really cool union is because um from the very beginning when it was formed back in the 1930s they have had this absolute commitment to the idea of democratic unionism so um you know they don't have a system where there's a bunch of bureaucrats and lawyers running the union and that every and and the workers are cut off from the decision-making process. Um, you know, the, the the people in the workplace are the ones who, in, a, in, in UE shops, people, the people in the workplace are the ones that are making decisions about what their contract should look like, you know, what, what changes they need in their working conditions they need, how they're going to solve their problems, how they're going to handle grievances. Um, you know, people are encouraged to work together and to protest and to uh, you know, do whatever you need to do in order to put pressure on the boss to treat people better. Um, right. So in that respect, the UE is is you know, really one of the best because they're very democratically run. Um, right. But like I said, it is a smaller union. In Connecticut, uh, there's, there's only a couple of UE locals. And Local 222 is actually, uh, it's kind of a catch-all. It's um, small municipal groups of employees, uh, some like... Uh, uh, para, like paraprofessional educators in school districts, people who work on road crews, uh, 
you know, in um, in New Haven, Parks and Rec. Um, everybody that works in Parks and Rec is is in the UE local. Um, you know, different towns, it's different groups of workers, um, but uh, um, you know, but they're all municipal employees. That's the one thing that they all have in common, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's an area where you know municipal u- unions for a long time and state state the state employee unions too for a long time kind of had this view that you know. Uh, we we're going we have a lot more job security we have better pay and benefits than in the private sector and there's been so many attacks on public workers over the last few years that you know a lot uh, there's a lot more folks struggling a, a lot more now so um you know defending public interest public sector workers is is something i feel pretty pretty strongly about um i'd love to see there you know i would love to see more unions doing more to organize people in smaller workplaces, um, doing more to organize, um, you know, contract workers, um, because uh, uh, that's our biggest problem right now is that so many employers are like small and medium-sized employers, and so many of them are hiring people as gig workers, uh, you know, independent contractors, um, and in order to avoid having to be responsible for, you know, for obeying employment laws. And, um, and I, I, I think that unionizing people is the only thing that's going to ultimately respond to that. Um, there are some things we can do, you know, legislatively. There are some things that changes in the law that would definitely be good. But, um, but unionizing workers is the number one, the, the number one chain that, change that needs to happen in order to give people more job security and uh, more say and more control over their lives. Right. And, you know, this Peter Gosselin, you are one of the best damn lawyers in, in the state. Let me tell you that right <laughs> now. One of the best. No, if you I just, I talk, I talk a good game. <laughs> right. Yeah. You, you get it done, man. Cause like I, what you were saying with how they like have contracts to put temps in as well too. And contractors, that is so true. Yell hospital where I work at. The cook is so bad, the cook line is tense. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they only have like a few a few cooks. I don't know what's going on. But literally it had the temps has been and that's and you know what? I come from a temp agency. The the same exact temp agency that's there is one I was a part of until Yale finally decided to hire me. Um so like yeah, they they could get opportunities, but it is like that. Like they just have it's like half the staff is not even regular staff; it's temps sometimes. Like it's amazing. And here's and here's the amazing thing about this. This was something that you know really really started to speed up a lot uh, around the time when I was first in law school, actually. And I did some I worked with a law professor, you know, doing some research on this, on the increase in independent contractors and temp workers and that was in the that was in the mid to late 90s and then there was a period of time after that where you know things things kind of rolled back but from the beginning of the recession in 2008 up until now um the percentage of the workforce that's being hired as contingency contingent workers or temp workers or gig workers or independent contractors is like totally through the roof and, you know, what's so crazy about it is when they came up with these categories like independent contractors, 
um, or, or temp workers, the idea was, well, there are circumstances where it doesn't make sense to hire somebody as a full-time permanent employee, either because of the nature of the work, like maybe they're doing something, a specific project for you, and that's all. So you're going to hire them as an independent contractor, or maybe you're going to bring them in during the busy season because it is like two months out of the year where, you know, your place goes like, the you know, period before Christmas, you're working in retail and place goes crazy. So you have to hire a bunch of people who are temps. That's the way it used to be. But now, even a place like Yale New Haven Hospital, you know, um, you know, big, big moneymaker, you know, making money hand over fist. And yet they will have, you know, line cooks, line cooks who are temps. I mean, that's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, you know, that's not what temp workers were. That's not what that whole category was designed for. Um, but it's become such a big part. And the same thing with, you know, people working for Uber and Lyft, you know, as drivers, yeah. people, you know, people doing the food delivery thing. And a lot of people have been doing that during the pandemic. Um, you know, these, these were, these didn't used to be jobs that you did like a couple of hours a day uh, as a second or third job. They used to be real jobs that people did all the time. You know, taxi drivers, for example, right? Like, you notice that like- taxi drivers unionized? Uh, well, you know, that's interesting because in, the, that's the funny part about it is in, uh, in Connecticut, there have been a couple of places where taxi drivers were unionized. And in fact, at one point, they tried to unionize taxi drivers in Stanford, and I believe in New Haven as well, one of the New Haven uh, taxi companies. This was some years back. But um, the reason that they couldn't was that the taxi companies had begun that process of changing the way they related to their workers so that they were more like independent contractors, more like gig workers. So, for example, they would tell the they would tell the taxi drivers used to be the case back in the day when taxi companies were a really big deal. You went to work for a tax as a taxi driver, right? You showed up at work with your license. You know, they gave you your credentials. They said you're in cab number 16. And, and, you know, you had a dispatcher who worked for the company who, you know, told you where to go. Uh, you know, and you, and you did that 40 hours a week or more. Now, uh, you know, and this is why this is the reason that they weren't able to unionize these places is that is that the the taxi company started out by saying, OK, uh, we're going to have you buy your own insurance and um, and you can buy a car and we'll put a taxi, you know, sign on it, uh, give it a paint job. Um, and, you know, so what you'll be doing is you'll be paying like five hundred dollars a week. Oh, for your yeah. car and your insurance. And, yeah. and we have a separate company that handles that. So like we're the taxi company of so-and-so, but we have this other company that's called the car leasing company of so-and-so. Uh, it just happens to be run by my brother, you know, uh, and, and the car leasing company of so-and-so is going to rent you the car. Right. That's right. Okay. So he's going he's gonna to lease you a taxi cab. Then I got like my sister-in-law has an insurance company. She's going to write insurance for your car and you're going to pay her. And so they broke it all down so that instead of somebody like going to work as a taxi driver, they were going to work as an, as a taxi owner. 
And so they would say, look, you're not, you can't be covered by a union because you're not an employee. You're an owner. You're, a, you're driving your own taxi. Like you won't, you won't own that taxi for 30 years, but you know, but you're the one with the lease on it. You know, you're the one that you're the one that had to go out and buy insurance and, you know, uh, do all these things in order to promote yourself as a business. Um, and, and that continued for a long time. And then finally some like, you know, some smart rich people said, Hey, why don't we set up companies where we don't hire, we don't, we don't buy any taxis and we don't buy any vehicles and we don't have any employees. We just have independent contractors who take their own car with their own insurance and we pay them a portion of what they, you know, of, of the cost of the ride. So now we've got thousands of people working in these 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 gig jobs that, um, you know, no job, no job security. If you lose if you can't work, you can't get unemployment. If you get in an accident, you're not going to be covered by workers compensation. You have none of the benefits that are associated with regular employment. Um, and so every single day you've got to be out there hustling like it was the first day on the job. So it sounds like to me, and I'm just thinking about this because I've been an independent contractor with uh, a few different jobs. Independent contracting is the greatest grant is the is the current greatest scam in American history right now. It's, it's absolutely, the and it and it's perfect and good for business for like billionaires to get just because you see Uber, like they went from just like a small little company to now they're like the biggest damn thing since sliced bread basically oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I noticed in new haven that there has been talks of unionizing um, yes do you do you uh do you know anything about the the unionizing movement for yeah I, I mean i yeah i know some of the folks who are who have worked on that on that campaign uh the, some of the legal people who've worked on it um and uh uh it's it's part of an effort that's going really going on all over the country. Um, there, are in in most big cities, there are people who are trying to, uh, in spite of the fact that right now, these drivers for Uber and Lyft and these other companies, right now they're all being treated as independent contractors. Technically speaking, that means they can't they can't organize a union as we traditionally would think about a union. Um, the greatest scam. <laughs> no, exactly. That's exactly right. They, you know, the employer doesn't have to follow any employment laws. They don't have to follow. They don't have to pay Social Security. They don't have to pay employment taxes. Um, and you know, they can let people go at any time um, and just say, you know, we just don't want you here anymore. Um, and there's no job protection. There's nothing. But um, in spite of the fact that technically these people are independent contractors, um, people have been trying to organize unions and worker associations for people in this industry and what we think is that eventually a combination of of organizing the, the these uh gig workers and bringing about legislative changes eventually we're going to be able to create a situation where there's some system of rights for people in these jobs whether they consider them, whether they classify them as employees or whether they continue to classify them as independent contractors, they're going to have to afford some sort of basic set of rights to everybody that works in the industry. Um, and, you know, that's what a lot of this organizing is about. Um, so, 
if if we can get some judges and you know there have been some cases where this has happened if we can get some judges to agree for example that like lift drivers are actually employees that they're not really independent contractors um and if we can develop some workers associations of gig workers uh and if we can bring about some legislative changes um that help to protect them um we could really change the face of that industry. Um, but, you know, we're, we are fighting against, we're literally fighting against a class enemy, right? I mean, their whole take on it is the boss's take on it is they want you to, they want you to have as little security as possible. They want you to be as close to starvation wages as possible. And they want you to feel as replaceable as possible. And with all those things in play, they can guarantee that they can treat you any way they want and you're going to stick with the job because look how bad things will be if you lose it. So everything that we've been fighting for, unions, universal health care, universal basic income, you know, uh, uh, better benefits for people when they're hurt on the job, but, you know, more money for Social Security disability and social, social Security retirement, all of those things provide a, workers a little bit more insulation from the boss, a little bit more protection. Mm. And so we're like at loggerheads, right? The two sides, we have completely different goals right now. They want to maximize, they want to get every single penny they can out of us. And we want to stabilize our lives as much as we can by having these other things. Um, and uh, uh, and there's not going to be any meeting of the minds. Nobody's going to, you know, you know, we're not going to find bosses who are going to be like, oh, yeah, no, I think it's okay for you to have a union. Uh, or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, I'm happy to, to uh, uh, make guarantees to you about your job security. Um, because, because uh, you know, capitalism is kind of in crisis as a system. And, uh, and in that crisis, every single day, those bosses are looking at the bottom line and saying, yeah, sure, we're, we've, been making, we've been making profits so far. But what if we don't make but what if we don't keep those profits up tomorrow? Uh, so we have to continue to be to push and push and push and find ways to keep people's wages down and keep their working conditions as you know limited as possible, keep their rights as limited as possible. Um, uh, you know, otherwise, once they and you know, because it because it is true, once you once you win a fight at work, I mean, I've you know I've worked on campaigns where we've organized unions coming in for the first time. And, uh, and, and as well as other places where you know, people have fights over, you know, all kinds of other issues like being paid, having the right to be paid overtime, for example. But when a group of workers get together and they have that kind of a fight and they win it, the first thing they start thinking about is, okay, well, we've made things a little bit better. What else could we do? What else could we accomplish if we work together? Right. Um, and, uh, and, and that's, like I said, it's, uh, we're we're on opposite sides of a war right now. Um, the companies want to treat us as individuals as much as possible. We want to try to work together as much as possible because that's how things will get better. Um, and there's no there's no mediation between the two. It's definitely the American concept um, that's just in the practice to always think about the individual and what you can do for yourself and how you can better your life. And there's heart, and there's no rhetoric at all about community anymore. Right. If there ever was, honestly, and it's the biggest battle because, like, what I'm what I'm seeing here is that 
you got you have the government versus the business and the business is winning because mm-hmm. the government is trash yeah yeah <laughs> if the government wasn't trash then the business will have no choice but to listen and people right now like a lot of people a lot of people who are getting involved in in social justice movements in general, whether it's workers' rights, uh, you know, or police accountability, whatever. One of the things that people are beginning to experience, beginning to see is that, you know, the politicians can talk a good game. They can tell you how much they value you, how they, how important they think you are. Um, they can talk about how much they believe in equality and social justice and freedom and all this other stuff. Um, but when they sit down to make decisions, you are not part of their plan. You are not sitting at the table with them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, in Connecticut, we saw this last year with the, that the police accountability bill, right? I mean, I knew so many people who had like, they were so gung ho and they were so happy. Like, yeah, we passed this police accountability bill and it's got this great language in it. It says all sorts of things about you know, what police have to do in order to get be properly trained and certified. And it puts restrictions on how they use their weapons and all this other stuff. Uh, and, it, and it says that, you know, we should have the right to have civilian police review boards and they pass it. And then once they pass it and they get ready to start implementing it, then people start looking at it and saying, well, wait a minute. Um, like, okay. So it says that, uh, it, it says that um, police officers are not entitled to qualified immunity when they're when there's when they're charged with misconduct well except for the fact that if you're working in a a city hartford or new haven as a police officer you're going to be assigned to all these to all these uh, tasks that are joint uh uh like state and federal and local law enforcement task forces and the moment you get assigned to one of those you're protected under federal law by sovereign immunity anyway. So people thought when the legislation was passed, they thought, oh, that's great, because that means that work, these, these police officers are now going to have to be responsible for the things that they do. You know, when they're out of line, when they abuse people, they'll have to, they'll have to be responsible in court. Like, no, it turns out that that's not true. It turns out that most of the things that people thought that this bill was going to accomplish I mean, we've seen in the last year, nothing's changed. And it's, I mean, it's getting worse of anything, right? Yeah. 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 I know it sucks. And I'm just thinking about all the time that I spent like, and all the time I spent trying to get people to testify, to be pro that bill, like just reaching out stuff. And then all the time that those amazing black women have done, Mm-hmm. to get awareness and reach out and give out the best testimonies they can to talk about how important these bills is and the black mothers that I think about all the time and the Latino mothers, all, all mothers that have lost their children to police violence in Connecticut. It's just, it's literally just a smack in the face after all yeah. that. We literally, yeah. we did everything that these Democrats 24 7 try to say oh well you need time to do or maybe we should do it this way we did it we got yep. y'all asked that's right voted in we got y'all to listen to put the bill in 
You voted for the bill. The bill got passed, and what happens? Oh, uh, turns out none of it's got none of it's got teeth. <laughs> none of it. Yeah, paper tigers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, what's yeah, the exactly. Now? What's the answer now, Mister Politician? We did it your way. <laughs> you gonna shut up? You gonna shut up and do it our way now? But what do you want? What the hell did we ask for? <laughs> what did we ask well, for? Well. I tell you, I, I, my my belief, and uh, and I think, you know, I'm not. This is not something I claim to be an expert about, but I it's my it's my personal belief, um, is that we have to start looking at the idea of having broad political organizations that represent working people that take up these issues and fight for these issues, but we also need to have we also need to start thinking about how we're going to replace these politicians and not just replace them with like, you know, the next generation of the same old thing, um, but actually replace them with people from the movement. Um, you know, uh, when I see, uh, you know, people who, who worked on the, the, uh, um, on the issue of police accountability over the last year, you know, there are a lot of rank and file leaders, who should be the ones representing their communities, not these professional politicians. Right. And, um, you know, as it stands right now, you know, with a few exceptions, right? I mean, we have some people, there are some people, you know, we know, you and I both know, who yeah. are exceptional, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Brother Holder Winfield, right? Uh, you know, is... Uh, uh, Robin Porter. Yeah, Robin Porter. Um, you know, and then, uh, you know, people who have become real activists like uh, um, um, uh, uh, Justin Farmer in, uh, in, in Hamden, uh, you know, who are really doing, doing the work. Um, those are the people who should be holding these. Those are the kind of people who should be holding these positions. Instead, we have people who are career politicians. Their goal, their goal is to get elected and then get elected to something else and then get elected to something higher up. And that's their goal in life, um, you know, but that's because they belong to a political party that rewards that, um, that's, that says, look, uh, you know, the higher up the food chain you go, there are people who are going to give you money. They're going to give you even more money. Um, there are going to be people who are going to, they're, you know, sure, they can't, they can't just bribe you, but they can pay for your trip to Israel you know, um, so you can uh, so so you can spend a month on vacation, uh, and uh, and come back and write a glowing report about how great Israel is. Um, you know. Uh, <laughs> yep. Uh, so many thoughts, but this leads. So we have about like ten minutes left. So I want to I wanted to ask you the big question. You ready for the big question, bro? Big question. All right. <laughs> Yo, are we coming after William Tong again for the Attorney General office? <laughs> <laughs> are we doing it? Are we doing it again? Uh, yeah, you know it's possible. It's possible. Um, you know, uh, the last time round in, in 2018, when I ran for Attorney General, we got about 15,000 votes, yep. um, which you know was not a lot. I mean, it's like only a little bit more than one percent of people that mm -hmm. voted. So it's not a big deal in and of itself. But the flip side of it is we spent virtually nothing on the campain. And, and this was 2000. What's that? 
<laughs> we didn't spend anything. I remember that. There was no. Yeah, that's money. right. I mean, it was like really, it was like you know, virtually nothing. Uh, and uh, uh, and and it was 2018, so it was like you know, uh, you know, good to obviously more than two years before uh, before the police murdered George Floyd. Politically, we were in a really really different place, and I was going up to organizations in every community, not just, not just urban organizations, you know, organizations in in urban communities or in the black community. I was going to like, like all white political organizations and saying, you know what we have to do? We have to make the police accountable and we have to make the attorney general's office able to enforce civil rights laws against local police departments that abuse people. And, you know, that was, that was not a tremendously popular message in 2018. Uh, there definitely were not as many people, uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of people in the street pushing for those kinds of things at the time. Um, right. I, I think if we were to, I think if not just me, but anybody running the same kind of campaign in the future with the movement being it is what it is right now, I think the dynamic could really change. And, um, and, and I don't know that it's necessarily going to be me, but I will say this, that um, you know, strategically, one of the things we've talked about a lot in the Green Party uh, over this last year is that 2022 is going to be the year that we're going to run a statewide slate of Green Party candidates. That means governor, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, attorney general, you know, all down the line. Um, we're going to have uh, people running for Congress in at least at least three of the five seats in Connecticut. So, you know, Justin Puglino in the will be running against Deloro again, like he did in in uh, in 2020. Um, you know, we'll have somebody running in the first and second congressional districts. What we really want to do is get some is is petition somebody to run against Himes, who's like the the centrist Democrat that represents Fairfield County and the Gold Coast. Um, oh and, yeah, uh, I remember You know, that. if we if, if if we could get yeah, if we could, if if we could petition enough people to. Uh, you know, to get somebody on the candidate uh, on the campaign in the fourth congressional district, it would be a big deal. But um, but you know, in in 2018, um, most people in Connecticut, when they went to vote, maybe they saw like, well, they saw those of us who were running for statewide office was like I think four statewide offices uh, that we had candidates for, and so they saw us, the four of us, as Green Party candidates. Most people didn't have any local candidates or congressional candidates or um, uh, or state legislative or state Senate candidates from the Green Party on their ballot. In 2022, most people are going to have, most, most voters in the state of Connecticut, most working people, when they go to vote in the state of Connecticut in November 2022, will have a ballot that has a string of Green Party candidates across there, from, from the governor all the way down to like state legislature. Um, and, uh, and, and that's, I think that's going to be a big change. Is that the um, first time the Green Party in Connecticut? It'll be the first, been? it'll be the first time in a long time that we will have had that big a ballot. Um, and it's not just having people, it's who we're going to have, because the, a lot of these folks are going to be people who are just like I was saying before, what we want is to run community activists who you know, who have committed themselves, who have committed their lives to this work. We want them to be the ones running for office, not somebody who's like looking, looking to make a career out of being a politician. Um, 
you know, running for office is a lot of work and it's a pain in the ass in a lot of respects, but it's, um, uh, but it's a task, you know, that you take on just the same as any other task that we do as activists, you know, to organize demonstrations or petitions or, you know, uh, uh, or letter writing campaigns or whatever. Um, running for office is the same kind of thing. And we have to get more of these, uh, you know, more activists on the ballot um, so that people have some real choices about who they can vote for. Um, if they, if we can convey the message that there's a party on the ballot that you can vote for that represents the interests of working people, that represents the interests of peace instead of war, and that represents uh, the idea of, you know, a livable future um, for the planet, um, you know, uh, people who are committed to these things and committed to social justice, committed to human equality, um, if we can get people used to the idea that we can put those people on the ballot, um, I think it's possible people might actually decide that politics is important. They might actually, you know, they might actually say, hey, I would go out and vote because I have somebody I can vote for, or actually believe in, who actually stands for something. Right. And what, what would you say about if you have any criticism um, on the, the current attorney general, William Tong, uh, what would you say if you, if you have any like criticism of what he should should be doing or should not be doing? Well, the number the number one thing, and uh, and and this is you know not really, uh, I mean, it's one of those things that you see from a perspective as a lawyer. You know, I have colleagues and friends who have worked on some major cases involving the state of Connecticut um, and have have won some major victories. Um, like one of the best, most important ones was um, uh, forcing the. Um, uh, the correctional system in, in Connecticut um, to properly treat people for um, uh, uh, for uh, for hepatitis C. Um, that's, that's and pe- people had you know people in the, people living in prison for like several years, you know, getting showing symptoms, their health deteriorating, you know, getting to the point where they have like irreversible liver damage, like you know all these really horrible conditions just because the prison system doesn't provide adequate health care. And, um, uh, and some of the, you know, a couple of the lawyers that uh, uh, Vaughn Ward and, uh, um, uh, uh, oh, he's going to kill me because I didn't, all of a sudden I'm going to blank on his name. Um, <laughs> he really will. Uh, so I just have to hope he doesn't see this. But, um, but these guys... These guys, I know a little bit because I spent a little bit of time working on it with them, but they mm-hmm. fought a, ca- a campaign to get the state of Connecticut to pay for health care for people with hepatitis C who are in the prison system. It's just good sense. It's just public health. It just is like the simplest thing imaginable, as well as being a fundamental human right. And right. they had to fight Tong and the attorney general's office tooth and nail every step of the way. Uh, because they continue to defend the system. And, you know, William Tong comes on television and you would think he's like the great liberal, you know, he's all about, he's all about all kinds of progressive social reforms, but his office has done more to hold back the tide for pr- ser- serious prison reform than anybody else in the state of Connecticut. Um, you know, they have fought tooth and nail 
to keep these lawyers from being able to make significant reforms. Um, and uh, uh, and that's it's not that Tong is it's not like he's doing it and nobody else ever did that before. That's always been a thing about the attorney general's office because the focus they presented as if somehow the attorney general were the advocate for the people. And really the attorney general is like functions in Connecticut functions as the advocate for the state government. Um, they defend the state government, no matter what it is state government does wrong, they defend it. Um, and, uh, uh, and that's, that's a, that's a big problem that, um, uh, you know, that, that, that instead of, instead of looking at these kinds of problems and saying, yeah, as the attorney general, I have a responsibility to the prisoners in the state of Connecticut because they're human beings and because they live in this state. It doesn't make any difference if they vote for me. It doesn't make any difference if they can vote for me. They're, they are human beings who are residents of the state of Connecticut and I have an obligation to them. And instead he looks at it as I'm the attorney general of the state of Connecticut and I have a duty to the Department of Corrections to keep them out of trouble and keep the and keep these troublemakers away from them so that they can't be forced to do the things that, to improve prisoners' lives. Uh, that's a shame. Well, wow, that's that is a shame because that wasn't a perspective that I was I was expecting. Hearing him from that one debate, thought he was a pretty more decent. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he sounds he he says all the right things, but right. the function that he's performing, you know, just like a lot of people in government, right? The function that they perform is inherently against the interests of working people. Yeah, yeah. It's just upholding the system instead of challenging the system. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Well, Peter Gosling, I would love to have you come back again because there's just so much we can talk about. Uh, absolutely, I would. I would do it anytime. You just give me a little advance notice. I'd be perfectly happy to come on here anytime and talk. Oh yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Thank and, you. Uh, Thank you. It was great. Enjoy the rest of your work. Uh, blessings to your wife and your family. Thank and, you uh, very much, and uh, and good luck with the I, this. You know, the, the the show is great. The format is really good. Um, I'm I'm glad to see you doing this. And uh, yeah, anytime. Anytime uh, you got a spot, anytime you got a vacant spot, you need somebody to fill. You know, I'll come on here and we'll talk for an hour. <laughs> Thank you so much, Peter, man. That means a lot. Man. All right. All right. Yeah, Take it easy. transforming community. Peace in our human family. Volume unity. Divine light shining individually. Collectively transforming community. In our human family As above, so below, feel the pain in my soul, the rep he'll dissolve. Organized, no matter the cost, politicians start wars, they don't fight, they sit in the poor. And nothing lasts forever as long as we stay together, give hell to the masses, watch the unity rapture. This is for the kids and the culture, it's one love, one growth, one light, light warriors.